2: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we percolate weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Charles Willock. In this edition, we'll look at robots that drive in traffic and the psychobiology of attracting a mate. But first up, here is the news with Ed (music) Pollitt.
3: Approach to encouraging peace and trust in the Middle East has been put forward by a group of Nobel laureates in the form of a fund worth more than 10 million US dollars. On the board of the fund is Richard Ernst, who won the 1991 Nobel Prize for Chemistry, and he said that promoting joint scientific efforts in the Middle East is one of the few hopes we still have for a future in peace and happy coexistence. Universities provide inspiration for respectful collaboration across all political borders. David Gross, winner of the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics, agrees, saying that scientists have a long tradition of working together across political boundaries. During the Cold War, American and Soviet scientists banded together in an attempt to control arms and end the conflict. The fund will be made up of donations from the private sector, and will initially support Israeli, Jordanian and Palestinian scientists, eventually expanding to include other countries in the Middle East. The types of research supported by the fund will include solving water shortages, tackling desertification, producing crop plants suitable for the environment, work on widespread diseases such as hepatitis C, and developing shared, internet-based science curricula and teacher training. As reported by the World Health Organisation, mental illness accounts for up to 15% of disease worldwide. Heavily contributing disorders such as anxiety and depression are associated with low levels of the brain's primary inhibitory neurotransmitter, gamma-aminobutyric, or GABA. Just a reminder for those of us who would like to know just what it is we're talking about here, including me, a neurotransmitter is a chemical that helps to transmit electrical signals in the brain, and here we're talking about the primary one that inhibits as opposed to excites, and low levels of this GABA are associated with mood disorders, such as anxiety and depression. The May issue of the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine includes findings suggesting that the practice of yoga may elevate levels of GABA perhaps by as much as 27% as found in a controlled study. The practice of meditative states such as yoga have shown promise in relieving symptoms associated with depression, anxiety and even epilepsy. The lead author, Chris Streeter, MD, is an assistant professor of psychiatry and neurology at Boston University School of Medicine, and is also a research associate at McLean Hospital. He claims that the findings clearly demonstrate that in experienced yoga practitioners, brain GABA levels increase after a session of yoga. Co-author Dominic Corallo, M.D., professor and chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine, states that the study contributes to the understanding of how the GABA system is affected by both pharmacological and behavioural interventions, and will help guide the development of new treatments for low GABA states. Do you think you might be salt-smart? Salt-savvy? Or perhaps, well, salt-silly? A new survey commissioned by the Australian Division of World Action on Salt and Health, or AWASH, has found that although most Australians are indeed salt-smart, being aware that most salt comes from processed foods, few were actively checking labels for salt content, and even fewer were acting on that information. So basically, we know that we eat too much salt, but it doesn't slow us down. According to the Awash chair, Dr Bruce Neal, most Australians are eating well above the 6 grams per day recommended by the National Heart Foundation of Australia. It is not well understood that almost everyone's health is being adversely affected by the salt they eat. The upcoming five-year Drop the Salt campaign is the first cohesive national salt reduction effort in Australia and will unite companies and organisations in reducing the Australian population's salt intake to 6 grams a day by 2012. Dr Neil said this is now probably the most cost-effective possible approach to vascular disease prevention in Australia. If the campaign is successful it would prevent approximately one-fifth of heart attacks and strokes. A local award certainly worthy of a mention. Professor Robin Ward received the Premier's Award for Outstanding Cancer Researcher of the Year, New South Wales' highest cancer research honour, at a dinner in Sydney on May 23rd. Professor Ward leads a group of cancer researchers at the University of New South Wales, and her primary interest is identifying factors that determine people at risk of developing cancer. Her breakthrough was the discovery of a new pathway by which people can inherit cancer from their parents. Both this and her ongoing contribution to furthering the understanding and management of cancer have been internationally recognised. But as honoured as Professor Ward is, she reminds us that she represents a whole group of people who work in cancer research and people who have worked across the spectrum, from laboratories to clinics, nurses, doctors, who are all contributing to our research discovery.
2: The DARPA Urban Challenge is on again. It is an international competition for robot-driven cars, cars that drive themselves. Dr Will Uther talks about his entry with Ian Wolfe.
4: My name is Dr Will Uther. I'm a senior researcher at National ICT Australia, which is a government-funded research lab. We're collaborating with the Australian Centre for Field Robotics at the University of Sydney uh, and UTS, as well as the University of California at Berkeley, to enter the DARPA Urban Challenge.
1: And what is the DARPA Urban Challenge?
4: The DARPA Urban Challenge is the third in a series of DARPA Grand Challenges that they've put together. Each of these has been to make cars drive themselves. The first two were to make cars drive themselves at reasonably high speeds. We're talking 60 kilometres an hour for seven hours across a desert in the US. Wow. So it was sort of high-reliability, high-reliability, driving through a largely open area. There was right. a sort of a dirt road that they had to stay on. So it's a little um, bit
1: of navigation.
4: So it was a little bit of navigation, but there were no other cars around. Any time two of the cars in the competition got near each other, one of them would be shut down and the other one allowed to pass or whatever. They were polite. It was a time trial rather yes. than a sort of road race where they all start at the start line at once and all go off together. Right. This one's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one, it's in an urban environment, so the cars have to drive through a small town area. They have to obey all the road rules, so you have to recognize the road markings, stay within the lines, deal with other traffic. There will be other vehicles moving around the area at the same time our vehicle is, so it must obey stop signs. uh, It must obey... In the US, they have this funky concept called a four-way stop, where... There's stop signs in all four directions, Right. and when you get to it, all cars stop, right. and then you go again in the order you arrived. So if you're <laughs> the first person to arrive at the stop, you have to be the first one to go. And so it means you have to sort of remember who was there when you arrived at the intersection and, and handle all of this stuff. Right. We have to handle normal two-way stops, so we yes. drive up to the stop sign, stop, wait for traffic to pass, and, and then go.
1: So that's enormously more complex than navigating on a desert road on your own.
4: Yes, yes. Now the other thing is that in the previous competitions there have been numerous teams. This is the first year that our team has entered the competition. So our main goal this year is to get the car working. Right. Uh, I mean, we we obviously want to get as far as we can, but we think we're doing amazingly well. Just go- already we've done it, we've done better than we thought we might. So right. um, we're very happy with our performance and. We'll see where things go from here. So what sort of car? The cars must meet standard road safety things. Mm-hmm. So you can design your own if you then want to get it crash tested and right. <laughs> everything like that. We're just using a Toyota RAV4 Right. Um, that Toyota was kind enough to donate to us. We've been testing on the Honda track in St. Ives. They've been kind enough to sort of give us time on their track, which was great. Is that like an obstacle
1: course or what it's is it? It's the
4: old police driver training track. Ah. And... Mostly, it's just a loop of road. It's kind of like a, a windy country road. They also have a big flat concrete area where the police drivers used to practice their skidding. Right. It's now used by Honda for driver training. They have a lot of learner drivers there, and they teach learner drivers. Where we were using the uh, mostly the skid pan and a little bit the the other road, just to get out somewhere that we could drive our car around or it mm. could drive itself around where there was no other traffic so we didn't have any chance of hitting anyone else or or anything else for safety reasons the
1: software end of this what sort of computer have you got in the car
4: we have a stack of four computers in the boot mm-hmm. of the car um they're all just standard ibm pcs i think they've got about two gigahertz core two duos mm-hmm Three of them are running Linux. One of them is running an operating system called QNX, which is a real-time operating system. So like a miniature Linux? It's not so much that it's miniature. Mm -hmm. It's that it's engineered for very fast response times. Linux is engineered to give you reasonably high speed, but it's not guaranteed that it will respond quickly to any one particular thing. Which is obviously very
1: important when you're driving.
4: Well... Linux, for, for, in terms of sort of human reaction speeds, Linux is fine. Mm-hmm. It's more that when we want to map, we've got laser range finders looking out the front right. of the car, mapping the road in front of the vehicle. And we need to map those very precisely with the inertial navigation unit that tells us how right. the vehicle is tilting. Because if the vehicle tilts, those laser rangefinders point at a different bit of road, mm-hmm. and it could look like a bump in the road when really it's just the vehicle is tilted slightly. And we need right. to match all those things up very accurately. So just to get the accurate timing, QNX mm-hmm. is
1: very good. So you mentioned this laser rangefinder, So how does the car see the road and the other cars? The car
4: has a bunch of sensors. We've got... Uh, laser rangefinders on the car, yes. as I mentioned. Well, we're planning to put some radars on the car. We haven't got those on right. yet. Uh, we've got a video camera on the car. Mm-hmm. It looks out the front and is used to detect the lane markings. That's mostly it. We also have a GPS unit and an inertial navigation unit. Uh, right. It's the same sort of thing you'd get in, a, you know, in an aircraft so that it can tell where it is.
1: So it's going along and it's reading the road signs, it's looking at the markings on the road
4: and it's looking at the cars around it and where it is.
1: Where and where it's trying to get to.
4: Yes. So it's given uh, at the beginning of the competition, or when you arrive at the test site, DARPA will give you a file which contains a, like a roadmap. Right. It's like they've given you a UBD. And then they've also marked out certain points in the mm-hmm. UBD and they've labeled them, you know, point one, point two, point three, point four, point five. These are all the points we might want you to get to. Then five minutes before the race starts, they give you another file which says, we want you to go to point one first, then point three, then point two, then back to point one, then to point five. Right. And that might change, and they only give you that one just right. before the competition starts. So then you you load that in and then your car has to drive off and make its way around the course, going to all those checkpoints in turn. It has to deal with the other vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be parking lots, they might ask us, you know one of the checkpoints might be in a car parking spot in a parking right. lot, and we have to go into the parking lot drive into the car parking spot and park, uh, right. and then come back out and go to the next checkpoint. And it's a race to see who can go through all the various bits all at the, you know, as fast as possible. How many entrants do you think there are? How many cars? Uh, there were 57 entrants before the last. The competition is not just one final race. There's actually a series of hurdles that DARPA right. set up that you must go through. The 57 teams completed the paperwork, right. which is obviously the easiest hurdle. But from 80 that we were originally saying they were going to complete the paperwork, you know, there's already some have sort of pulled out as they've realized how difficult it is. Of the, I think, 57 submitted a video of their car driving in their home driving area. Of those DARPA selected, 53, that they will come and visit sometime in June or July. And we're one of those 53 teams, so that's why we're all packing up to head to the University of California at Berkeley, because DARPA right. will visit in the US. Once DARPA has a look at those 53 teams, in August they notify the, they notify 30 of those teams that they've been successful and move to the next stage. The next stage is then in October, where they'll get them all together at one place rather than visiting them all separately and put them through some qualification event. It's unclear exactly what that will be, mm-hmm. but in previous years it's been a a cut-down version of the larger course. So they had just a small area where the cars could drive around, interact with other cars, and that sort of thing. And then the final competition, they'll cut it down again, probably by about a half, so there will be 10 to 15 cars in the final competition, and that will be held in November.
1: For those who haven't heard the acronym before, what does DARPA stand for?
4: DARPA stands for the American Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency. And they're the American equivalent close enough of the australian dsto or defense science technology organization they're a government funded lab that develops advanced things for the u.s defense department and they've actually done a number of things the internet was originally darpanet and then it became arpanet and then it sort of turned into the internet but that's sort of one of their big projects that they've funded and they've funded a lot of work in artificial intelligence in general what do you see as the future of self-driving cars will we all have one Oh, I think there's no doubt that we will all have one. And when I say this, it scares people, but I think in the not-too-distant future, it will be mandatory to have self-driving cars and human-driven cars will be illegal. Too Um, unsafe? Too unsafe, yeah. I don't know when that will happen, but I would say within the next 50 years.
1: You could have cars that can drive themselves and they can network with the other cars to find out what the traffic conditions are. Yep. And with the central traffic control. Yep. And so all the traffic would just flow more smoothly, more quickly
4: and more safely. So NICTA has a number of projects working on smart traffic. We're actually mm-hmm. collaborating with the RTA on improving the traffic light control in Sydney. Sydney actually already has some of the most advanced traffic light control in the world and oh, sells wonderful. that to other cities around the world. But we're looking to help them improve it further. Yes, it'd be great to have the cars work. NICTA also has uh, other projects in Canberra where we're working on driver assistance. So rather than having the computer take over complete control of the car, we have the computer just check that things are going okay. So it might be looking at the driver to see if they're falling asleep. It may be looking to see if they're staying within the lane. If everything's going okay, then it just stays out of the driver's way. If they start falling asleep, then maybe it sets off an alarm and just nudges them towards the road. You, that is sort of early stuff. They don't. Mm. That project is designed deliberately not to take control away from the driver. It might nudge the wheel, right. but it's not going to wrench it out of your hands. And then we're going for the extreme of, no, you can sit in the car and not touch anything and it takes you for a ride. It's like having a chauffeur drive you around. And who wouldn't and, want
1: their own personal chauffeur?
4: Well, exactly, especially if it's going to get you there faster. Yes. Um, you know, I and and how would this eventually be introduced? Early on, I imagine something like the e toll lane. As you're driving down to go, you know, through the tunnel or over the bridge, there's one lane, and as you drive into that lane, your emergency, your uh, automatic driving system, sort of. Bleeps a couple of times and says, I'm taking over, and then it starts steering and, and takes control. And only people who have automatic driving systems are allowed in that lane. And the nice thing about that is that it makes it all very predictable so that the system can be simpler and not have to deal with humans maybe doing strange things most of the time. And so then that lane would travel faster because everyone can go in it. Actually, the other interesting thing is it's not just improved travel times. There was some very interesting work done in Melbourne that I read about recently where they've shown that if you adjust your driving behavior, it can be more efficient. So we also hope to have this thing reducing greenhouse emissions. You can have the car drive more effectively, more efficiently, and thereby less greenhouse gases, especially if it's hooked in with city-wide traffic system. Maybe the car could be automatically deciding where to go so that it finds out from the traffic system where the bottlenecks are and Mm -hmm. automatically plans a new way to get around those bottlenecks. So it'll get you there faster, more efficiently, less hassle. And then when you get there, you hop out and send it home. You don't have to park. Thank you very much.
2: That's quite all right. Thank you. Dr. Will Uther's robot chauffeur, soon to be driving a car near you.
5: Um... I've noticed you around. I find you very attractive. I've noticed you around. Um I find you very attractive. you go to bed with me?
2: You've been listening to Would You from Touch and Go. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2ser.com brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Wouldn't it be great to actually know what makes people attractive? Here Patrick Ruby investigates the science of attraction. What is it about people that we find sexually
6: attractive? Is it that twinkle in the eye, that well-toned body, or is it that sweet, sensitive personality that turns us on? This is something we continue to think about as human beings. Analyses of sexual attraction, such as the science of attraction by Rob Elder, give us some clues. Apparently it's all about passing on your genes. Or is it? Scientists think so, and have been testing what constitutes attractiveness through a number of experiments, looking at facial and bodily symmetry, and even smelly clothing. Pheromones, those odourless airborne molecular cupids, are thought by many to be the main matchmakers in sexual attractiveness. They act as a marker for the type of immune system you have, and in this case, its opposites attract. Dr. Klaus Werdekind of the Zoological Institute at Bern University, Switzerland, experimented with some sweaty t-shirts riddled with pheromones. He found that women perceived the odour from the t-shirts of men with dissimilar immune systems to their own as more pleasant. Other studies have backed this theory that pheromones and immunity play a large role in attractiveness. In another scientific camp, symmetry is the winner. Randy Thornhill of the University of New Mexico found that college males were more attracted to symmetrical features in their female peers and that its symmetrical college girls got more loving and started having sex at a younger age. Masculine men may have an edge in short-term mating opportunities, whilst feminine women have more luck in long-term couplings, according to Attractiveness and Sexual Behaviour, an article by Gillian Rhodes and colleagues in the Journal of Evolution and Human Behaviour. Both facial attractiveness and body attractiveness play an important role, but recent research suggests that attractive faces are even more preferable to attractive bodies. And what of the sweet, sensitive guys? Opinions on this topic vary. A sensitive guy might be a more stable option for passing on your genes, but that doesn't stop the treat-em-mean, keep-em-keen player types from getting the girl. I went out among young Sydney siders to discover what they found sexually attractive in a person, and whether physical attraction is a big deal. What is it that you find sexually attractive in a person?
5: Usually I go a lot on voice. The first thing that I notice in someone is usually their face. So um, bone structure is something that I particularly
0: will be drawn to. Eyes probably first. I'm attracted to uh, interesting coloured eyes. Shape.
5: I find... A male, uh, sexually attractive, uh, if he's well groomed, has got a well toned body. Uh, shows he goes to the gym. Not not a, m- a muscle pack uh, or anything like that. And also, what I find very attractive is very nice hands.
0: Their physical appearance. Uh, that's what I initially find sexually uh, attractive, Um, then if I'm actually lucky enough to meet them, then it depends on whether I actually find the person interesting or not. Um, They could turn out to be an absolute idiot, and thus their sexual attractiveness to me would... uh Decline significantly. Um, If it turns out they're very funny, uh, they're intelligent. We share some of the same opinions, uh, perhaps same politics. Then they they could could even become more attractive. And basically, being pretty nice and, um, yeah. Recently,
4: you know, intelligent enough to have like a decent conversation with really just someone. You know, it doesn't really matter if they're different to you, as long as you can kind of just, you know, kind of, you know and you know stuff that you can share with each other I guess
5: um confidence without being overly confident is nice um someone who laughs a lot but then if they do something stupid they laugh at themselves and not be all like ugh I'm embarrassed ugh
6: do you find personality is very attractive too
5: yeah this is just the first impression before he uh, before the person speaks personality of course um um it's very important. I like people who are courteous. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm not one of those people that straight for appearance anyway. It's, I mean, appearance is like, as the old saying goes, it's last 15 minutes and then you better have a personality. So I'd be mainly attracted to people that would be, have, have like-minded interest in me or at least be open-minded enough to talk about things and not just put you down if you have a slightly different view to them.
0: Oh, yes, almost definitely. That's much more attractive than, than physically to me. Uh, someone um, who is uh, speaks very intelligently and uh, um, is, uh, y- you know, reasonably uh, forthright in their views, even if they're different from what I, I would hold. I would certainly find attractive, like some sort of physical attractiveness. But I think so he you know, has to dress good.
3: Beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. So, for me, the guy's personality would be so much more important than his looks. Yeah.
2: Of course, you know, I have like a standard, but I mean, I think personality is a lot more important because physical appearance only lasts so long.
6: I mean, what do you find physically attractive in a person?
2: I personally,
5: I I've, I've always been more of an artistic type, I guess. I like someone to be... Because I'm fairly tall. I like someone to be taller than me. Um, I don't like them to be really built so that they're overpowering. Physically attractive, again, as I said, is mainly facial features. Like, I mean, I I don't mind if they're really skinny or if they're really, like, really large as long as the, the face is there and the meanings there behind it. But the thing is, though, it really doesn't matter because as soon as you like someone and as soon as you start to love someone as well, they become the most beautiful thing in the world.
0: Also, sometimes people uh, do become more attractive as what you uh, perceive to be flaws actually become uh, distinctive characteristics that you, you like about that person. They're not necessarily flaws, They're, they might have um, strangely coloured hair, un- unusually coloured hair for example that you might at first think looks a bit freakish but then after a while you come to appreciate that it's, it's actually quite beautiful.
6: And there we have it. It seems like personality is the big winner in Sydney and not physical
2: or facial attraction. So what do you think? What do I think? I think that was Patrick Ruby wasting some of the best pickup lines ever. That's all from us for this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. You can subscribe to our feed from our website at www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program were Ed Pollitt, Patrick Ruby and Ian Wolfe. Um. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney and syndicated nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Charles Willock. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science ponderings next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
5: you around. I find you very attractive. Would you, um, um, would you go to bed with me?